Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I'd invite you right now uh, to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, either the Bible that you have or the, the Scripture journal maybe you've picked up from the back or, or whether it's on your phone. I'd invite you to open that up to the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Matthew is the first book in what's called the New Testament, found about three quarters of the way through. And it's one, right, of the four books that tells the story of Jesus. And we've been working our way through Matthew for some time now, but have recently begun a new series as we've come in that gospel to what's traditionally been called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've decided to park here for a bit because it's here that that Jesus really for the first time in this gospel, since his arrival on the scene as the king, this is for the first time in this gospel and Jesus takes up the task of teaching his followers what living in his kingdom looks like, which happens to look very different than living in this world, almost like living upside down, right? And that's true whether with what it looks like to be blessed or with what it looks like to find joy or as we're going to see today, what it looks like, what it looks like to live rightly before God. Because righteousness in Jesus' kingdom, as we're going to see, isn't just about what we do on the outside but about what we're doing on the inside. So again, either in that scripture journal or if you have a a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to where Jesus picks up this theme in Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 17, and once you're there, you can follow along with me as I read from, from verse 17 to the end of verse 26. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into this uh, new section of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus sort of lays out for us um, his ethics, as it were, his, his kingdom ethics, I, I pray that even now, as we're challenged and comforted by that, that you would empower us to live in the way Jesus lays out here. I pray that specifically as we dive into what it looks like to be angry and, and the consequences thereof, I pray that you would help us in our honor of Jesus as King to give up our anger and to keep our lists short, as it were, when it comes to the ones we've offended and the ones we keep of those who've offended us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the age of 87, Melita Norwood had led a rather unremarkable life. Married to a school teacher, she had taken up a job as just your everyday, ordinary British civil servant, working as a secretary uh, at a research institution that focused on the development of non-ferrous metals. I don't even know what non-ferrous metals are, let alone why you would waste time developing them, but there she served her country for some 40 years until her retirement in 1972. And then, and thereafter, for another 30 years or so, till 1999, her only real claim to fame, besides being a mom and, and then a, a grandma and eventually a great-grandma, her only real claim to fame was the fact that she was known around the neighborhood for the quality of her homemade chutney. That is until... Her name appeared in a book called the Mitrokin Archive, which documented the KGB's extensive espionage activities in Europe and the West. Naming her to the surprise of even her 56-year-old daughter as one of Russian communism's most valuable informants. Valued as an asset, even more than the famed Cambridge Five. And that's because after hours, she would secretly remove files from a safe at that research institution, copy them, and hand them over to her Soviet counterparts. Unless you think that handing over documents on the development of non-ferrous metals, a, a somewhat harmless espionage activity... What you have to understand is that research institution for which Mrs. Norwood worked for some 40 years was actually a cover for Britain's nuclear weapons program. And her assistance is believed to have sped up Stalin's own development of an atomic bomb. This little old lady who was all right on the outside, but all wrong on the in. Which kind of makes you wonder about the little old lady living down your street. 
Because if it's anything like in the United Kingdom, it seems that one's righteousness, living rightly, even just by human standards, sometimes only needs to go skin deep. The standards, apparently, for living in the United Kingdom, however, are a far cry from those set by Jesus for living in his. Because having already said in this Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and are persecuted for righteousness, now Jesus will turn to explain that for his upside-down kingdom, you can't even get in unless yours is an inside-out sort of righteousness which is what we're going to focus our attention on today. First, as we consider Jesus' call to this inside-out sort of righteousness, and then second, as we consider one of his applications of it. So first, the call, and second, then, the application. First, let's consider Jesus' call to this inside-out sort of righteousness, which you find beginning in verse 17, which, which no doubt... Even here is Jesus' way of clarifying what he's already said in verse 16. Do you remember? That we are to let our light shine, he said, before others so that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Jesus wants to make the point now, though, that just because others are meant to see our good works doesn't mean that those good works should only go as deep as can be seen. No, they're meant to flow from much further in. So again, this call, beginning in verse 17, which Jesus issues in relationship to what he calls the law and the prophets. You see it there? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets being just a a typical way of referring to the Old Testament, God's word written in the 1,500 years or so leading up to Jesus' arrival. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean, though, that Jesus didn't come to abolish God's word, but to fulfill it? Well, a number of proposals have been put forth, beginning with the fact that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in terms of their promises, in the sense that what the writers of the Old Testament looked forward to, from from Moses to Malachi, Jesus came to satisfy, whether as the, the, the snake crusher promised to Adam or as the scepter promised to Judah, the, the promised prophet who would be greater than Moses or as the promised king who would someday sit on David's throne. They're all promises in there, and, and Jesus came to satisfy them all. But is that really the focus here? Even if Matthew makes that point elsewhere. No, it doesn't seem so, even even if that's assumed beneath the surface. So so others have suggested that what Jesus is saying is that he fulfills the law and the prophets in terms of fulfilling their provisos and provisions. I know we don't use that word provisos often, but... I thought it fit here, right? It just sounds so good. Provisos and provision, doesn't it? You would agree, right? But he fulfills the law and the prophets in terms of 
provisos, that is, the requirements of the law, and all that God demanded in God's word from God's people. Jesus does it doing what we never do, right? And then he goes so far as to fulfill the provisions of the law in the sense that he steps in and becomes the the sacrifice on our behalf, the great sacrifice, paying for what we haven't done. So then on the one hand, he, he, he again does what we never do. And then on the other hand, he then dies the death we deserve for not doing it. The provisos and the provisions. But as true as that is, Matthew Two will make the point. As true as that is, this doesn't seem to be the focus here either. Oh, sure, it becomes the focus later on, but isn't where Jesus takes it here. So what does Jesus mean when he says he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them? Well, if we just let Jesus tell us for himself, it seems like what he's saying is, and he's saying here is, is that he's come to fill them out, to fulfill in the sense that he, he, he's come to fill them up full and to, to offer the definitive interpretation, the de- definitive explanation to his followers as to what these good works of the law that we're meant to to shine before others, and and that he'll shine forth himself what these good works to explain what they really entail. Because even as Jesus says in verse 18, the smallest letter of the law, the iota, or the even the smallest stroke of a letter, the dot, Jesus says, will not pass away until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments of the law as interpreted by Jesus and and teaches others to do the same, he says, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. For I tell you, Jesus says, and here's the call, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. That's a pretty tall order, right? I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees were like the religious all-star team back then. These were the guys who made it to the Super Bowl every year while those like us were just left with a bag of Doritos to watch the game from the couch, right? Like the Bears do every year, right? This is, this is, this is the religious all-star team. And yet you're saying that you can't even enter the kingdom without a righteousness greater than theirs? Yes. Because their righteousness, Jesus is saying, only ever went skin deep. Because while it was all right on the outside, it was more often than not all wrong on the end. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the guys in Jesus' day who spent their lives interpreting God's law, but doing so for their own benefit, so that their righteousness could be seen by others as they wrote up the rules, so to speak, to their own advantage and rigged the game so that it's no wonder they ended up in the Super Bowl. 
So that the Pharisees' devotion to the inter- their interpretation of the law was not in the end really out of a regard for the law, but because they wanted to be a law unto themselves. Like, think about it. Those in our own day who twist even man's law as a way to undo the law in order to live above the law. Like those billboard lawyers who who guarantee they can get you money even if you were the one who caused the accident. So too, the Pharisees. So that even in their escalation of the law, Jesus is making the point that they were in fact relaxing it because they were looking at it all the wrong way, as a line to or to not be crossed rather than as a way, a pathway to be lived. So Jesus issues this call against the the outside-only sort of righteousness of the Pharisees to to the inside-out sort of righteousness of his upside-down kingdom. What, though, is that meant to look like in the life of one of Jesus' followers? Well, well, to get at that, we have to turn from Jesus' call to this inside-out sort of righteousness to, to Jesus' own application of it, which we'll actually be looking at for the next several weeks as Jesus' application runs, in fact, all the way through to the end of chapter 5. But let's just look for today at where Jesus begins with what this inside-out sort of righteousness looks like when it comes to murder, of all things. Which is something I suspect most of us have avoided, and perhaps even felt pretty good about avoiding, until you hear what Jesus has to say. Just look at it in verse 21. Because he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. So what Jesus is saying is that murder isn't the only thing God cares about, but also functionally murdering someone in your heart, being angry with them, or functionally murdering someone with your words. Wasn't God the one who said, thou shalt not murder? Wasn't it God? I mean, that's the Ten Commandments. So what gives Jesus the right to reinterpret what God said even if he is the Son of God. Let me suggest that's not actually what Jesus is doing. He's not reinterpreting, but interpreting rightly. Because when he says there in verse 21, and this is a bit technical, but look there. When he says that you have heard that it was said to those of old, He's not just referring to the commandment, right? You shall not murder, but to the indictment that had become wrapped up along with it, that whoever murders will be liable to judgment, which is technically not in 
the Ten Commandments. Oh, sure, it's true. Those who murder sit under the judgment of God for, for killing a, a, an image bearer of God and must either, therefore, atone for their sins or have their sins atoned for. But Jesus is saying you can't use that like the, the Pharisees had as some loophole in the law, as if to suggest that because the commandment was about murder and surely assumed a certain judgment, that as long as you avoided the actual act of murder, you somehow would avoid the judgment that went with it. That's a little like your kid trying to tell you that they didn't hit their sibling, right? They just threw the Tonka truck that hit their sibling. So the stitches, right, aren't really their fault. You should just go and talk to the Tonka truck, right? Really? No, I'm sorry. I didn't spell this out for you in enough detail, but that was implicit in what I said to begin with. Do not hit your sibling included not hitting them with the Tonka truck. And so, too, Jesus says, when it comes to God, that in this case, implicit in God's command not to murder, not to murder specifically with our hands, is likewise a command not to murder in our hearts or to murder with our hurtful words. And notice Jesus' particular emphasis on, on being angry, angry with one's brother or insulting one's brother, he says, by which he means one's brother in the faith. Because after all, if he's right about this in general, how much more when it comes to the family of God? Just like we would say of our own families, right? That's sure, you ought to treat everyone as you want to be treated, but how much more those you're related to and have to live with and have to share a, a, a tube of toothpaste with when you wake up in the morning. Well, so too when it comes to the family of God because we're going to be sharing a whole lot more than a tube of toothpaste for all eternity. Interesting, though, the, the principle cuts two ways, not only pertaining to our anger toward others, but also to their anger toward us. So listen to what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, against you, he says, then leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So be reconciled first, horizontally, to your brother, the brother or sister that you've offended, and then come to God, the Father, for reconciliation, vertically. That's what this gift at the altar is. It's an offering to God and recognition that we need this reconciliation with him as well. And in that relationship with God, we're clearly the offending party, right? And yet, if admitting our faults with God, we're still at the same time unwilling to admit our faults with others, and even to others, right? To go to them and admit those things. Don't you think that in God's eyes that sort of strips the significance out of the peace offerings we offer him? Because if we're not willing to pursue reconciliation with God's family, with our brothers, right? With our sisters, 
then it calls into question whether we genuinely desire it with God. Or perhaps care that God has made such reconciliation possible for the precise purpose of gathering a people, right? To make us a people. Similar to the time my dad took us out to dinner as a family on some special occasion. I think we went to McDonald's or something. You know how it is, big family, right? You go to McDonald's for special occasions. So he took us out to, to give us this shared experience, this shared memory as a family, something to unite us, to connect us, to, to join us together, only to have us break out into a veritable civil war. With ketchup going everywhere, the drinks are spilling on everyone, fighting going on, everybody's running for the bathrooms, running out of the bathrooms. To the point that by the time we got into the the car, he wasn't really caring if we said thank you for the meal. We had already showed him that we really didn't care. Well, likewise, Jesus says, first, go, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift to God. First, be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to your sister. As with one who files a lawsuit against you, Jesus says, come to terms quickly, he says, verse 25. Literally, make friends is what the word says. Make friends with your accuser quickly before it's too late. Lest your accuser on the way to court hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, this is supposed to shake you. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What does this mean though for us today? Just focusing on this one area that Jesus applies this inside-out sort of righteousness to, let me suggest two things that you can take with you, two of those takeaways. Paul, this is for you. You take this away. This is just yours. You could go. Two things, let me suggest. First, that you ought to keep a short list with others, and as far as you can, second, make sure others have a short list with you. And by list, I mean the laundry list of those things we're holding each other accountable for or for which others might be holding us. First, when it comes to the list we're keeping for others, let me encourage you, keep it short. Keep it short, which to begin with means not being so easily offended. It means forgiving and passing over even the little things to begin with. Not because the little things don't matter, but because we recognize that we are all, if we truly are brothers and sisters in the faith, we are all growing out of the little things. We cannot be offended at everything. And that's a matter of grace in and of itself. And we forgive much. Why? because we've been forgiven much. So can I say that? Don't be so easily offended. Jan, though not being so easily offended, 
We can also keep a short list by going to others when we are offended. Beyond not being so easily offended, we can keep a short list by going to each other when we are offended. In confidence and confidentiality, sharing with each other the concerns we may have, whether with how someone has hurt us or offended us or sinned against us or violated our trust. Go to them and share with them the concern, just like Jesus says later in Matthew. Because if you don't go, you may avoid confrontation for the moment. But you're probably not sparing the person from a greater conflict in the future. Nor sparing yourself from offending them. Right? Isn't that the, at least a piece of what Jesus is saying here? That you're growing anger and, and you're growing anger and resentment at someone else for something they likely did to you is actually an offense against them that you're someday going to have to answer for. So keep a short list, both for their sake and for your own. I was driving with one of our elders this week, coming back from a meeting, and he actually started the conversation that way. He said to me, Jesse, can I tell you how you offended me? I said, sure, go right ahead. And he proceeded to tell me how I had inadvertently, I'm very thankful for it, but how I had inadvertently broke his confidence in, in what, again, thankfully was a minor way. But, but that's what he said at the end. He said, I just want to keep the list short. I'd encourage you, do the same. Do the same when it comes to your list with others. But also, as far as you're able to second, make sure others have a short list with you. Which is hard, difficult, a lot of different dynamics go into it. But as far as you're able, make sure others have a short list which, with you. Which means when others do come to us with some grievance, we can't be grieved just because they came. Right? We've got to be open to it and, and ready for, for it, right? Because we'd rather be growing into the image of our Savior than staying in the image we need saving from. And isn't this why we're together? Equipped as a body, Paul says, to speak the truth in love, that, that we together grow up in every way into a, the full measure of Christ. So we got to be open to it and ready for it. And even Jesus goes so far to say, ready to invite it and to go and seek it out. Even if that means getting up from this proverbial altar and going to find the individual you know has something against you. tell you what was perhaps the most impactful experience I ever had with my father. A man really that I've looked up to my entire 
life, all the relational strain and difficulties that, that an oldest son has with his dad, but a man that I've looked up to my entire life, the most impactful experience I ever had was when he came into my room at night and asked if there was anything that he did that day that he needed to ask forgiveness for. And then he went one step further and asked what he could do to do it better. And I remember my dad doing that over and over and over again. And really, that's the prayer. Would that we be a community that not only extends forgiveness to those who offend us, a, a community that keeps the list short, but even goes so far to do all that we can to shorten the lists others have against us. Because again, this is, what, this is what inside out, that inside out sort of righteousness of this upside down kingdom looks like for which our Savior died and for which he rose again, would rise again to make possible. Next week, we're going to celebrate communion, an even more proverbial altar than this. And during that time, we will celebrate the gift, right? Jesus talks about the gift we bring to the altar. But we're going to celebrate a gift that we don't bring, celebrate the gift rather that was bought on our behalf by Jesus. A gift that is meant to embody and establish our unity as a body. And let me encourage you this week then to spend it leading up to that shortening your list and seeking to shorten the list others may have against you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that it would be so. That for that tall order, you would empower us by your Spirit, encourage us, comfort us, embolden us to that end. That we would risk all the conflict, all the confrontation, that we might be built up together into the full image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray it in his name, grateful that he did it first. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.